say, bro, I think we should do an introduction like uh, like they do on Planet Money. Yeah. <laughs> Very Black Male is supported by MyFullTimeJob.com. MyFullTimeJob.com, providing unrestricted funds and opportunities to finance creative projects with no obligation to pay bills, debt, or back taxes. Learn more at MyFullTimeJob.com slash VeryBlackMail. Hey everybody, it's Ashra. Last week I played an episode with Andy Campbell and Michael McFadden. We talked about the needs of emerging writers. Uh, I thought I'd follow up with part two of that interview. And in this one, we continue the conversation about how Andy and Michael made moves in their careers and the importance of an editor-writer's relationship, as well as the current state of writing. Uh, without further ado, very black male. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't know how. You, I mean, you have a you have a full time gig with Roe, right? I mean, uh, well, or there. Like when I first started writing, I was freelancing, right? <clears throat> totally. But I had a steady gig with a marketing startup that did the bulk of it, which really. I only had to dedicate like a day a week to mm. get them what they needed. Mm. And so I had the rest of the time to focus on the stuff that didn't pay as regularly or as well. Mm -hmm. And I was writing a lot more then. And then when I started working at Project Row Houses, I kept it up for a while. Like I was writing monthly for mm -hmm. free press. So I was writing really regularly for arts and culture. Yeah. And then once I started school, it all just kind of like seeped away. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, your time's being taken, your intellectual energies are being taken by school in a way, yeah. But I still, like, if it's gone from, that was in the beginning me pitching a lot to, like, finding two regular writing spaces, right. and then occasionally, like, switching pitch and commission, and then now it's mostly commission. Right. Like, if arts and culture asks me to write about something, I will. Right. But other than that... It's so interesting, and I wish and I wish you would. I love your writing in arts and culture. Like I like reading you in arts and culture. So like, yeah. I mean, the last I think the last the last big piece that you wrote for them was the Jenny C. Jones piece, or was there another one since then? Um, I did like more of an arts reporting right. thing for Maximin and Hillerbrand. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And then I did a review yeah. that I think is only digital for uh, Nick Vaughn and Jake Margolin. Yeah. At Devin Borden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, the nice thing about it is, like, I do think that there is a, even if we don't, even if, like, so so the first time that I actually, like, sat down with Michael, like, Michael was trying to get me to sit down, like, with him for, like, months and months and months, and I just, like, could not figure it out for the life of me. And so, like, when we finally sat down, it was kind of like, well, I mean, like, I feel like I kind of know you because I've been reading you and I've been, like, following your work. And, like, and, and what's nice is, like, we can actually have a critical community even without sitting down together because... If you're a critic, I, again, who's worth their salt, you're you're engaged in reading what your fellow critics are saying about things. And for me, that's a way of also shoring up how I'm feeling about things too. Like, like we don't share every single point on our Jenny C. Jones's reviews, but like, but for the most part, we do. And so, like, I think like that's that's a really interesting kind of place where like Michael and I can sit down at, at a table and kind of sharing community in that weird way as critics, you know, like as, as or as arts writers. Like, yeah. I don't know if you would solely identify yourself as a critic only, but... Um, Someday, maybe. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I mean, all you have to do is just call yourself that, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I spent a long time actually like not being comfortable with people referring to me as like an arts writer. Right. And then being accepting of that and people starting to call me a critic. And I still don't consider myself a critic because there's not always as much critique right. as there could be in my work. Right. Well, and that's the difference to me between like having worked for the Austin Chronicle between being asked to do like what were essentially like arts journalism pieces where you're like interviewing people and pulling pull quotes and like that kind of work versus like doing a kind of review based kind of critical or a kind of like, you know, a critique based kind of critical writing. But I think regardless of what piece you're doing at what time, like, I don't know, I guess to me you're a critic, like, you know, like and you can also be an arts writer too. I don't think it's either or, but like, but like to me, you've engaged in critical writing enough to like, you're a critic. Like, you've got the chops. Like, you're a critic. You know, like, so, and I think that's, yeah. Do you see a, um, I know, I, I perceive like a rise in arts content, but do you see yeah. a decline in, so uh, a rise in the arts journalism and then maybe a decline in the art critiques? Oh, or, interesting. Uh, I don't know. Because I do see more content being pushed regularly. Mm. And then you did address, you know, the fact that, uh, Publications are continuing to cut, you know, employees. Yeah. Um, what which form do you think is on the rise more? I don't know. Listicles. Listicles. Yeah. What's that? Like like, like just when you list things out. Uh, oh, like top five or yeah, this, like, this December or stuff yeah. like that or the stuff that like appears on like. Um, like hyperallergic sometimes, or um, yeah, art net, like shows yeah. to see in Paris type of thing. Right, or like here's a gathering of Carolina Miranda who works at Culture, like worked at the LA Times or LA Weekly, and this culture would do this a lot, where she would kind of gather the week's like art stories like into one mm -hmm. list that then would be published as the blog post. Right, so it's yeah, I mean that's a fairly common. Well, if you Form. talk, I think it's all because of like the decline, the rise, whatever, you, whichever one you want yeah. to refer to it, it just comes from being able to look at like website analytics. Mm -hmm. And so talking to the publisher of Arts and Culture, he told me like some of the most popular stuff on their website when he asks like their web person to say, oh, it's the listicles, it's the top tens, it's whatever for right. that month. Uh, and Last year, the year before, Joel Lux, when he was still at Culture Map, uh -huh. uh, he was at like a fresh arts workshop for PR, and he was basically saying that it just doesn't get clicks, like visual art reviews, stuff like that, right. doesn't get the clicks that it needs to really, um, for him to like put that much attention, and like on top of him like mm -hmm. having more of a performing arts background. Mm -hmm. And then, hmm. yeah. uh, so he just doesn't put that kind of focus on it unless right. there's like a, a narrative or a, like a controversy yeah. or something behind it. Right. So there is like... Do you think there's that. a way for... Um, because in another part of this uh, series, um, myself and a professor at HCC, Jeremiah Croster, oh, yeah. and, or uh, Crotzer, excuse me, mm -hmm. and a young man named Anderson Robson, who's an uh, English student, we're talking about W.B. Du Bois versus mm -hmm. um, Washington, and like these are two critics who are kind of like critiquing each other as mm -hmm. critics. Do you think that um, maybe 
you know, you could envision a future where the critics are critiquing each other to try to find out what's the best critical approach to <laughs> garner those clicks, you know, because I know everybody doesn't want to do those listicles, but maybe there's another way to, yeah. you know, catch people's attention. Like the way that when I think of um, like a Vice or a Complex, mm -hmm. you know, those titles are very eye-catching, of course, mm -hmm. but it's usually they wouldn't show those. I mean, I, I don't know what their SEO is like, like what their clicks are like. Right. So. I mean, I think that the answer to your question is a lot harder to... I mean, it, it requires a society have a hard look at kind of what systemically is undergirding it instead of kind of... So I see the problem actually not as how do we make arts content more exciting, but actually like how do we instill in people a value and a love, an early love for what art and in all its forms can do and can be. Mm -hmm. So like part of the problem is that like we've totally devalued and totally defunded arts and arts education in this country. Mm -hmm. And so the answer to the question of like how can we get arts to have more clicks is like um, art classes in school. Like, but no one wants to hear that because that actually requires a lot of money and a lot of resources and a lot of systemic change. Um, but I do think that that critics are consistently kind of referencing or working against each other anyway. Like I think like you'll see this when like say for example Jerry Saltz who works at the at the New Yorker will write something and someone will write something that's kind of against <laughs> kind of Jerry Saltz's point of view and like and if you make a straw man of of any critic and ev almost every critic is more complex than one article can ever do justice to them for. So like this whole, as you're mentioning this like Du Bois and, and Booker T. Washington kind of thing, it's like, you know, real, I mean, scholars of that moment where they're both kind of like writing and working off each other. And, and we can, we should add like Alan Locke into that debate too, right? Like, like where they're like kind of working against each other like obviously one person is not going to be the figurehead of all that is good and right and the other person is all, is the figurehead of all that is wrong and, and, and evil. There's not one sole path forward, but like I think historians have agreed that there are certain ideas from each philosopher that um, especially kind of black arts and black liberation movements take forward, right? So it's the same thing with critics. It's kind of like I'm totally going to miss the mark sometimes and like maybe more often than not even, right? And so like we have to kind of make each other better as critics by kind of being in dialogue with each other kind of consistently. Whether or not I'm name-checking Michael in my review, like, I'm thinking about what he's written and I'm thinking, like, what is, what is what I'm saying different than what Michael's saying about this thing? You know, like, and how can I add to the conversation instead of just say, like, yeah, what he said? Keeping that you know? in mind, is, is, <laughs> you know, like, is, is a review ever actually complete? You know, like oh uh, god, I could go back forever and re and tool around and dick around with the reviews that I write for sure. But like, but no, I mean there there's always a deadline. There's always there's always more that I wish I had done. There's always a phrase that makes me cringe and wince. And how do you function when you don't you don't you don't read stuff? And maybe I'm like too much of a narcissist that I go back and actually read my own stuff sometimes. But like I like skim through it to <laughs> check to see if anything got changed, like without my knowledge. Yes, yes, but, yes. Yeah. Most of the time, I just like won't really yeah. get, dig deep because I'll always see like, oh, that shouldn't be there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know that's like the worst. That's like it. It like literally is the sinking feeling in your stomach. That's like, I really hope no one notices that thing. What is you know? your What is your attitude or um, your method of dealing when you don't have a deadline? 
Oh, it's if bad. If it's like a pitch, you know, but that you've already written for. That's kind of a... I don't think that situation's ever happened to me. Like, no? I think I've always worked on deadline. I mean, if I'm not working, if I'm working on my own project without deadline that's set by somebody else, like, I can extend out the life of what I'm working on for as long as I... I want, you know, and that can be really detrimental to the project. But most of the stuff that I write for publications have have deadlines. Yeah. Well, I'm. I guess I'm yeah. asking because in terms of um, uh, productivity, I try to work with a number of artists and or mm-hmm. writers and encourage them, you know, to yeah. just just finish it, bro. Yeah, totally. You know? um, but yeah. is there like there's never really a stopping point? So I guess it wouldn't work unless you have the social pressure from the editor. Yeah. saying, I need it by this date, dude. Uh, yeah, and I really, like, I try to respect that. I know that some, I know some writers don't respect those deadlines, but I know as someone who has edited work in the past that I really appreciate it when people make the effort to get stuff done on time. So mm-hmm. even if it needs a little more work than I'm comfortable with, like, I always try to get it in on time, even if it's with a note that says, like, if you wanted me to clean this up over the next day, I can certainly do that, you know? But I try to always respect those deadlines, and deadlines actually help me get it done. Yeah. Like, Deadlines are the thing that help me achieve my goals, you know, <laughs> like, you know. I think when I first started, I was doing, I just wrote a bunch of stuff and I was sending it to places. Right. Because you're kind of writing on spec at that point, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, maybe they'd pick it up, maybe they didn't. Right. So there's stuff that was still sitting in my computer that never got published, mm-hmm. even though it was sent to a couple of different places. Mm-hmm. But... After that, like, it became more about like building the relationships with different editors, with the editors, or yeah, whoever, and like yeah. pitching things and finding what they were interested and in, what I could bring to that publication yeah. versus another publication, and just kind of yeah, going off on that. Yeah, the editor writer relationship is a relationship that often readers don't often see out, out front, but those are the relationships that sustain our practices. I mean, in very key ways. Like, those are the relationships that allow us to take risks as writers when we have editors who are behind us in a way and who are interested in us taking risks, then that those can be really productive or really counterproductive relationships depending on kind of what the dynamic what, is. Yeah, the dynamic is. And it's all personal dynamics like it's not even necessarily ideological like it's like it can solely be the way that you talk to another human being and that's that's a big part of kind of the work of of criticism too is relating to an editor um and to their edits and to the way that they're kind of intervening in your writing or not and whether they have a an ideology that says like i should keep a writer's voice consistent or whether they're like we the publication has a consistent voice that every writer has to come to heel to mm-hmm. like those are very different philosophies of like what it means to commission writers to create work and so it just depends yeah. um, uh, that's a tangent two, Sorry. two last questions yeah sure <laughs> because I'm pressing already very very on the door of your all's time so uh, okay. the first one is this is kind of a, you know just a playful thing what is the deal <laughs> with why we don't have an art section in Houston and how can we change <laughs> that on the Chronicle? You know? Yeah. I mean, it goes back to it. Just got cut. About, huh? Yeah, it, it got, got cut. cut. I mean, the, the Houston Chronicle is a business venture, yeah. right? And so they're looking at kind of numbers and economics, like page space equals dollars. How right? did we end up with just one newspaper? I mean, that's a bigger question about kind of the the consolidation and the shrinkage of print media. 
I mean, which has a lot to do with kind of online platforms too. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of places are experiencing this where you had multiple local newspapers, like a big metro, metropolitan area like mm-hmm. Houston would have multiple um, newspapers, but now a lot of them are only functioning with one. Or if you're lucky, like in Chicago or in New York, you've got a couple. But even that, like, there's obviously a dominant, you know, <laughs> like there's obviously a dominant paper, you know. <laughs> And people are not subscribing. I mean, part of it is like people are not subscribing to local newspapers because they feel like they can get the news quicker by Googling whatever it is that they're looking for. And so, they can. And they can. And they can. But what's shocking to me is that even online platforms for, for criticism and for distribution sometimes work at a slower pace than a daily or weekly newspaper would have because at least a daily or new, weekly newspaper had to have content you know, ready to go each day or each week. Like this review that I wrote for for Dallas, it's gonna come out like three months after the show's over. And it's online. Like, like, so sometimes even outlets that are working online are not using kind of what's best and greatest about that medium to their mm-hmm. advantage. But yeah, the newspaper thing is a tricky, is a tricky thing. Because they used to be like, um... Devin Britt Darby was the that's right. Chronicle for a while, and then that's I right. think it got cut, and right. he was the visual arts editor at Arts and Culture, and right. he left because he got a job at He's the Blaffer. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's what we've been seeing, these kind of shrinking, I don't know, these shrinking models, and, mm-hmm. and what, what other kinds of reporters will tell you, what like politics reporters and kind of metropolitan reporters will tell you is that the the leeway to do much more in-depth reporting that takes a longer amount of time has been cut from their jobs. So instead of spending like a month following a story and then writing something that maybe appears in one or two issues as a longer story, like that doesn't happen as frequently as it does now. And now there are dedicated small teams, like that's what Spotlight's kind of about, these mm-hmm. kind of like dedicated small teams that are following these major stories that you have to pour enormous resources in. Like so, so it's bad all, I mean it's, it's kind of bad all around, but like, but like when when your whole section gets cut, and when we don't have kind of arts coverage in the local newspaper, that can be really dangerous because then people don't have a stake in what it is that we're okay. that we're doing. Yeah. Last question. Sorry, rant. But no, no, yeah. no, I get it, man. Look, it's, it's necessary because yeah. then, uh, I think those discussions are going to encourage um, people who have a more a better understanding of those digital spaces to yeah. try to use it. All right, well, if it's they're doing advantage. that, yeah, we're yeah. going to flip that. Yeah. Um, what are you reading? What are you writing? And what are you listening to these days? The last thing I read was an essay by Nietzsche for class. <laughs> um, what essay? What was it? I know. And I'm like, you can't just like throw <laughs> Nietzsche like out the, there. With the China, like, with the yeah, yeah. utility <laughs> and liability of history. So looking at uh, how he described monumental history, antiquarian history, and critical history, and then kind of turned it into um, advocating for the unhistorical, mm. which it's, I don't know, it's a whole thing. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> right now, I'm not writing anything. Por qué? No one's asked me to. All right. All right. And uh, what's on the what's on the what's on the rotation these days? What gives you the Michael McFadden juices? <laughs> and, uh, lately, it's been a lot of shaky graves. Mm-hmm. 
I have He's, no idea uh, what that is, but I'm gonna check it out later. <laughs> I'm telling you, look, that's what that's what this You're section is for. Furiously typing. Yeah. <laughs> He's a kind of folk country indie singer out of Austin. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Andy. Um. So, uh, I just read this book called Queer Rock Love, which is a memoir. Some uh, writer Paige Schultz, who's in Austin. It's a memoir she did about kind of growing up, but also kind of starting a family with her partner who is in transition in some ways and also kind of living with hepatitis C. So it's very memoir. So I I go back and forth between reading texts that are like important to me as an art historian and and texts that are important to me as a holistic person. Mm -hmm. So Queer Rock Love is like important to me as a holistic person. The text that I just picked up again and I'm now rereading through is Hilton Owls' White Girls, this collection of essays by um, Hilton Owls that are not that are mostly about white women protagonists but are not so, like um andre leontelli is one of his examples and like he's he's a critic who works in the um in the new yorker um and and he is he kind of had like a moment when white girls was published and now i'm kind of revisiting that mm-hmm. in terms of listening the thing that like helps me to do to be productive and do work um the Hood Internet has these like amazing mixtapes that I really love, and what they do is they take um, they take hip hop vocal lines and they put it against like um, either like weird indie like Sufjan Stevens or like weird uh, kind of instrumentals. So they they do like these kind of incredible um, these incredible mashups for yeah. lack of a better word, and they're and they have these like mixtapes that are maybe about fifty minutes long, and it's just enough time for me to like sit down and be productive for 50 minutes and then get up and go to the bathroom or get another coffee or like mm-hmm. so like I find that the structure of their mixtapes happens to be about the time that I perfect fit that I do yeah that I actually do work really well um and I'm watching RuPaul's Drag Race yeah. every Monday at JX <laughs> yeah so like so so that's the other <laughs> that's the other you know I I live for that kind of stuff I that to me again is sustaining to me as a person not just as a thinker like I yeah like I'm interested in gender theory and queer theory and of course like there's a part of my intellectual brain that's activated when I watch that but watching it in a gay bar with a bunch of other gay men and women and and also not gay men and women but people who love RuPaul's Drag Race it's like the closest I've ever come to experiencing like a sports bar experience you know like and and so like I'm also interested in it as like an as like anthropologically like as like you know as an observer and also participant so you just made me think of me you just made me think of one last question. Yeah. Um, if you had to be trapped in one art show, one exhibition, whether it was a gallery or a museum or some pop-up, what would it be? Like recently? Like a recent no, exhibition? No, I mean, or any, a... anyone. Any show that you had to be trapped inside of and you knew you were going to die there. You had to live oh my God. <laughs> the stakes are really high. <laughs> they just Unlim- got really high. Unlimited yeah. food, unlimited drink. Um, mm. But you're alone, though. Right. God, what would it be? That's deep. The first thing that comes to mind is international pop at the Walker. Okay. It's a lot of room, so you can like move around. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking practically. You're yeah. like, I just. But you it's know. also it moved through like the pop movement through different countries. So there's always something you can like sit with different work and think about the history of those people, those artists, and like what was happening in their society, like in their communities at that time. And it just like goes through um, South America, Asia, 
the U.S., Europe, and it, I mean, there, yeah, and there's a movie theater okay. at the end of it, so you have things to watch. I'm gonna cop out and choose two. <laughs> Sorry, okay. That's fine. That's but fine. like, but but um, the two exhibitions that have given me the most joy that like I feel like there's always more to kind of see in and appreciate in, and I return to their catalogs quite often. Um, is one is Whack Art and the Feminist Revolution, which mm-hmm. was a kind of survey of feminist art um, that kind of crisscrossed the nation, and they're both like these big shows that crisscross the nation. And I saw them in multiple venues, so I'm thinking like. I would love to be at Wax Incarnation at the Museum of Women and the Arts in Washington, D.C., because it's yeah. such a weird Beaux-Arts building. And then the other one is Radical Presence, the show that actually um, Valerie um, curated that was here. Um, and then um, I saw it also at the um, Studio Museum in Harlem. And that and that was like such a great space. Um, that, that space is, is not is not wonderful, I mean, it's a smaller space, it's New York, so it's a smaller space regardless <laughs> of whatever, limits, yeah. but it has its limits as a space, but that show felt really incredible and electric in that space, and I would I would love to be in that space over and over again. Mm-hmm. So so those are the two shows that for me, it's like, if they, if they were still around, if I could go and see them somewhere, I would totally get on a plane and go see them again and spend more time with them. Andy, Michael, thank yeah. you both very thank much. Thank you so much, this is so, no one asks us to talk about <laughs> criticism. <laughs> no one cares about critics. So it's like it's, it's nice to be able to talk about our craft a little so bit. So there you have so it. Thank That's you. basically the down low on what's happening in the critical arts world. Except for that bit about the Houston Chronicle. That was a personal question. I plan to stay at home all day and read through a bunch of listicles, driving up the clicks on some of my favorite websites. You know who you are. For all you halftime critics, I'm giving you the blueprint. Go out. Write something. I always love to hear what you think. Uh, You can send me emails at asherabayan at gmail.com or hit me on the social medias at ablovelady. Please direct all hate mail to your mother. She has my information. Uh, I'm Ab Lovelady. Thanks for listening.